everyone. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. I'm Sophie Klomperens. I'm Raymond Docapil. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I mean, I'm Bono. I mean, what? Unreliable Narrators. <laughs> Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by Stoa alumni where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. Today, special guest Trinity Clomperens rejoins us for our discussion of U2's 1987 hit song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't Welcome back to Unreliable Narrators. We have Trinity Clomperens back with us in our studio, which is not really a studio. Also, you should all know that this episode took a very long time to get set up because Raymond isn't here because he had hypothermia. An hour and 20 minutes. Took us an hour and 20 minutes. Well, okay. Uh, uh, yes, there, there, we were, the Sophie and Trin are back home from break and we are actually going to record in person. But snow happened, and I tried to jump in my 42-degree pool. And so that that's the reason for that, and we're not going to say any more about that. Wait, I don't think I actually got an answer how long you were in the pool. Cause... I was, I, it went in, okay, so it snowed, and our family does this thing called polar dipping, where <laughs> we heat up the hot tub, and then we jump in our cold, freezing cold pool, and when it snowed, it, the pool was about 42 degrees. And so I jumped in and we, about three times, you jump in and you get back in the hot tub. And the third time we stayed in for 20 seconds. And I think that's probably what did it. Um, 20 seconds. Okay. Yeah, that's yes. pretty long. Whew. Yes. Yeah, so I was sick and, and now we're recording um, on electronically. Yeah. So if Raymond sounds a little... Uh, hypothermic <laughs> feverish it's because that's why i'm fine i'm fine guys <laughs> nice. uh trinity we're discussing Thank you, for having me. Yeah, you. you too and i still haven't found what i'm looking for i've been told that yes you have a joke so everyone you must know bono is a huge part of the band you too and i have a bono joke <laughs> okay <clears throat> go for it there's a bono concert and Bono walks out on stage and he stands in front of the audience and he starts clapping his hands like this. And he says, Every time I clap my hands, a child in Africa dies of malaria. And one of the audience members stands up indignantly and says, Will you stop clapping your hands? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so now, okay. now that we've heard that. Yeah, uh, thank you for the roaring reaction. Um, that's, that's actually one of the best jokes ever told. Thank you so much. And brilliantly told, by the way. Uh, brilliantly told. Uh, Bono joke. If you ever, if anyone ever brings up U2, you now have one. Also, Trinity, just to clarify, Bono is the lead singer of U2. <laughs> thank you. I did say huge part because I wanted to cover all my bases. <laughs> wasn't entirely sure. <clears throat> so before we before you listen to the rest of this podcast, please 
go listen to the actual song. It's really good. It's well worth the four minutes and 37 seconds of your time that it will take to finish the song. And what we are going to say, we will talk about the lyrics, we will repeat some of the lyrics for you, but it will be helpful to you if you listen through the song before we go through our discussion. So now that you've hit pause and you have listened to the entire song before continuing, Raymond, do you have anything to tell us about the the you the band U2 or Bono or the the background of the song? Yeah, so I think it's really um, important when we're investigating a song to uh, look in, a little into the life of the author. Um, that is something that has fallen out of popularity in uh, literary theory now uh, because you know um, they we we don't value the author's intent or autobiographical uh, info. But I think that it's really important in this in this case, really interesting. Uh, so his real name is Paul David Hewson. Uh, he is Irish, um, and he came from an interdenominational family background. His mother was a member of the Church of Ireland, and his father was Roman Catholic. So they agreed to to raise the first child Anglican and the second child Catholic, which is an interesting uh, situation to grow up in. Um, and Houston, although Houston was the second child, he still attended his mother's church instead. So that kind of says a little bit about his kind of Christian beliefs, which has come into a lot of his lyrics. And when he he got the name Bono because he was part of a surrealist street gang called Lipton Village when he was a teenager. Um, he had several nicknames in this game. His first nickname was Stein Hig von Huysenelga Bang Bang Bang, uh, <laughs> which then changed to Huysaman, which then followed, was followed by Houseman, which changed to Bon Marais, which changed to Bono Vox of O'Connell Street, and finally just Bono. Uh, Bono Vox comes from Bonavox, which means, which is Latin for good voice. Um, so just an interesting little background on, on Bono. So he is an interesting character in, on the cultural stage because um, he's unique in that he is pretty, pretty explicitly Christian. Um, at least he is open about the fact that he is Christian, um, but he's also a pretty active political activist. Um, so one of his stage characters is known as McFisto. So during the 90s, he would dress up as the devil based on the character Mephistopheles from Faust. And he developed the routine of prank calling politicians during concerts dressed as the devil and telling them that he really liked what they were doing. So it was a huge joke for the audiences because it's the devil calling all of these politicians. The politicians had no idea that he was making fun of them. He was definitely not a rule follower in any strict sense. He has uh, been charged with misdemeanors for doing things like defacing public property during concerts. I mean, the main the main U2 song that I know besides this song is Sunday Bloody Sunday, and that one also has very explicitly Christian imagery, and it talks about the victory that Jesus won and even references Jesus and things like that, so... I definitely had that connection before of U2 and Christian imagery. Speaking of imagery, to talk a little bit about the poetry of the song. Um, and also, so when I was reading about Bono earlier, he was a big fan 
of the poet Charles Bukowski, who wrote a lot of free verse poetry, and who also, interestingly, was explicitly not Christian. <laughs> Openly, in a lot of his poetry, he was pretty anti-the church, anti-Christianity in general. And a lot of the message that Charles Bukowski has in his poems, and actually, if you look up, uh, you can see videos or, like, hear recordings of Bono reading Charles Bukowski poems. And apparently he was reading a lot of Bukowski poems at the time that he was writing this song. If you're gonna try, go all the way. There's no other feeling like that. You'll be alone with the gods, and the nights will flame with fire. And a huge theme in Bukowski's poetry is an idea that's very similar to the Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. That whole idea, which I think is very interesting given some of the themes of this song, how it seems like it has some inspiration from Bukowski and also imagery that reminds us a little bit of the Psalms or of biblical imagery. And he he's also said in interviews that he has taken a lot of inspiration from the Psalms. To talk a little bit about the, the poetry and the progression of imagery in the song itself... Hopefully you all went and paused and listened to it, but to go over some of the lyrics to talk about how the imagery in the song progresses. So it starts by having a lot of nature imagery, right? So it says, I have climbed the highest mountains, I have run through the fields only to be with you. So we start with this, an image of going through life using the imagery of nature. And then we move from that to talk after he says, only to be with you, he says, I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls. And then he repeats city walls, which takes us from the idea of nature as sort of a, a bird's eye view of the natural world into civilization. So he goes from nature to an image of civilization and then has the first, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The first part of the verse deals with romantic love. Uh, he says, I have kissed honey lips, felt the healing in her fingertips. It burned like fire, this burning desire. So we move from really big picture nature down to slightly smaller picture man in nature civilization down to the individual romantic love. And then from that into the supernatural so he references 1 Corinthians and says, I have spoke with the tongue of angels. I have held the hand of a devil. So nature to civilization, to romantic love, now to the supernatural. And then finally, he rounds out all that imagery with explicitly Christian or Christological language. I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one. But yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, you know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So it goes from nature, circling round, through all these places you might find what you're looking for, ends on the Christological, and you think it would end there. You would think he would find what he's looking for there, but then he doesn't. He goes through all, basically every single place you could look, and still doesn't find what he's looking for. Yeah, and I also wanted to mention that it's not exactly clear who you is in the in the poem. In the first verse, he says he's climbed 
the highest mountains only to be with you. Um, but and then when he talks about I have kissed honey lips, he does not refer to you, implying that the you in this poem is not referring to mm -hmm. a love interest. Who you is is not clear, though. A, a lot of analysis I've read seems like a lot of people think that the you is already calling ahead to the Christological section, that he's referring to God in some sense. But it is it definitely isn't clear. Um, and it's possible, I think, that the singer also doesn't know exactly who you is, given the fact that he still hasn't found what he's looking for. Yeah, I think that you can refer to, even if it's not romantic or a love interest, a, a relationship, as in, I think everybody, and I think it does a really good job of describing this, going through fields and, and mountains just to find a person that you can be fully yourself with. I suppose that would be one way that people could think that they could find what they're looking for. And I think a lot of people do try to find satisfaction in life by just relating to and being with another person. So it doesn't have to be a defined you. It just has to be a person that you are looking for and searching out. Talking a little bit about you two and who Bono is as a person and then also the poetry, I think probably thinking about the the musical history of how we got to this kind of style of music is also probably helpful when figuring out what exactly he's trying to say. Um, but Raymond, I think you know a lot more about that than I do. So do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah. So culturally, this is a really interesting musical moment. So I'm going to go back a couple hundred years and try to cover this extremely quickly. Um, a brief history of music as it began from the Romantic era. First of all, we need to make sure that we know that there's a distinction between the Baroque, Classical, Romantic era, although most, uh, most of the time we generally think that, you know, all the music during that period between, like, what, 14, 1500 and, and 18 to 1900 um, all belong in the category of, of classical music. Um, but there actually is a distinction here, and it actually it began with Beethoven. So prior to Beethoven, most musical composers um, still had a very close connection to church music. So Bach, Handel, and Mozart all composed both sacred and secular music, but um, they made a lot of their career was based off of composing music for the church. Um, music was meant to inspire a reverent state of mind, so dissonant, music or introspective music that explored the agony of the inner of of or inner turmoil of the soul was a pretty foreign idea that all changed with beethoven and beethoven was the first person to uh start introducing dissonant music music that expressed pain and the full range of human emotions and that what is what ushered in the romantic era which was roughly uh, you know, the 19th century was ma mostly characterized by that. And that was happening all across Europe and, and not just music, but in, in literature and art with, you know, uh, Dickens and, and, and Impressionism, for example. 
Um, but the Romantic era was chiefly categorized as the movement of privileging emotion over form, a focus on spontaneity, a desire to connect with both the raw and natural, but also the supernatural, and this is the important part, without appealing to Christian tradition. Um, so when you look at poets like Wordsworth, they would use imagery of God, but they would never use, let's say, like Trinitarian uh, theology. Um, the same is true for even Beethoven's Ode to Joy. So Friedrich Schiller's poem was talked about God, but never in a specifically theological way. And that naturally evolved into the jazz era. And the jazz era was an even farther extension of this idea of emotion and spontaneity and improv. And, you know, that came out of that resulted in improvisation. And then jazz evolved into rock and roll. Um, which is, I think what happened is that we got to a place where we were just kind of like turning up the volume in terms of the pitch of our emotions now. And the idea of Christological imagery was still very much present in this shift, as is evidence in, in the Romantic era, but it became very much more in the background. So Christian in the 19th century became more like an adjective for a decent person like, you know, a decent Christian fellow rather than an actual belief. And you can see that kind of idea existing, especially in rock and roll, such as American Pie, you know, the three men I admire most, mm -hmm. the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They all took a trip down to the coast the day the music died. So Christianity is definitely in the subconscious or in the background, but it's not the emotional or moral center of that song. Um, the emotional moral center is located elsewhere. And I think that's also true in, in U2's music. Um, so it's a really interesting evolution of, you know, this divorce or slow drift away from church music to rock and roll. And so that I think is really interesting because it yields questions about what Bono is actually doing here with his lyrics. So that makes me think back to what we were talking about last episode when we were talking about Paul on Mars Hill and then Aristotle and the rhetorical situation. The rhetorical situation being whatever rhetorical tools are at your disposal for the people that you are talking to. So on the one hand, we were just talking about how if you're talking to people like Paul was, where it's the Greeks who don't have a cultural background of Christianity at all, that's one situation in which you would use certain imagery or call back to their culture, which is what Paul does when he talks about their poets and about the altar and all that. But then also, if you're talking to this culture, so a modern uh, Western, particularly American culture that has Christianity sort of built into it from the ground up, um, that affects the rhetorical situation, that affects the way that you would talk to that culture. So how do you think this song fits into that idea? Yeah, I think that there's an interesting problem, when, it, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel to, this, to the, our current culture and American culture, because like, if you were to talk to someone on the street and, and preach the gospel and say, you know, Jesus loved you, loves you, he died for your sins and all that, uh, most people would respond with, I know, even if they 
don't really aren't church-going people because they're already introduced to the gospel. Uh, almost everyone knows that Christmas is celebrating the birth of Christ, even though they may not have any kind of religious education. Um, so it's a very different response um, in America and also in Europe when you bring up issues like the gospel um, because it is, comes with all this emotional baggage of, you know, 2,000 years of church history, which is mixed up with a lot of other things. People have emotional difficulties swallowing, I guess. Um, and And so they're going to have a very different response to someone in the first century when Paul was preaching in which the gospel very much was good news. I mean, that was the original idea. The gospel was good news. That's what the word means. For a lot of us in the modern day, the gospel is bad news uh, because it begins with the idea that, you know, you're, you're a sinner, you, you need to repent, and generally calls to a way of life that generally interrupts. Involves taking up a cross. <laughs> In involves taking up a cross. So it may, so that I think is part of the problem. And part of the problem that a lot of us are facing right now, which happens, you know, in the American church where we try to make Christianity easier or more popular, um, we secularize it, we romanticize it. You know, I think a lot of uh, contemporary Christian music is kind of an offshoot yeah. of romantic poetry in some ways. So, I think that's part of what Bono is is trying to deal with here is maybe he's trying to bring Christianity back into the culture, but that's not exactly easy. I think to that's do. really interesting because that last verse too can be read. Well, I always I think you can really read it in two different ways because it's either what what you're saying where yeah I know that the kingdom will come, I know that you bore my cross, all of that. As in, I know the facts of Christianity, but I don't believe it. Like, I, I just, I still haven't found what I'm looking for because although I know the facts, I don't believe it. Or it could be read as, I, I do believe that, but I still feel empty because of it. So either way you come from, it's either you do believe Christianity, but you still feel empty and you haven't quote unquote found what you're looking for, which the question of Well what's interesting is what's interesting is he actually says, you know I believe it. I think he says it twice. Oh does he actually? Yeah. He says you broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, of my shame, you know I believe it. Okay, he only says it once, but he says I believe it. Yeah, and I think that's actually quite relatable. I mean, almost anyone who has sort of matured or struggled in their Christian faith has come to the point where like uh, yes, I've accepted all of this is true, but I'm still having a really rough time of it. And maybe I'm not feeling super great about you right now, God. You know, I suppose the reason why I viewed it as that first way of, yes, I know the facts uh, of Christianity, but I don't actually believe it, is to me that always sounded kind of sarcastic. Because as soon as he says it, he then says, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So it's like, well, yeah, of course, you know I believe it. I mean, I grew up learning that. I grew up hearing that. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So mm -hmm. you you know the facts, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Those are all the things that are true. But I, I still doesn't uh, make me feel less empty. So I suppose it almost sounds sarcastic in one way. Which I think 
brings the question, though, like what you were saying, does Bono's song represent a return to religion? Is he trying to bring that back, or is he saying it sarcastically? Is he saying it as a cry for help, almost? So what? also one of the other things I wanted to mention, and this might answer part of your question, is that in one of the live concerts, he actually has a gospel choir. And For this song? Yeah. Oh. And yeah, actually, if you're going to go and listen to the song, you should probably listen to the live gospel version because it's probably one of the best recordings of the song. Okay, so now pause um, again. Go listen to the gospel <laughs> choir version and then come back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's really interesting that he decides that he's going to use that because of what kind of gospel soul music kind of rep represents um it came out of the american south and a lot of african-american music is kind of started with gospel music now the south there's a lot of literature that's been written about that flannery o'connor called it famously the christ haunted south Mm -hmm. um because christ was there but you know it's you know but but only like in the back of people's minds and it's very almost ironic that she would have called it haunted because haunt a haunted place you know a haunt is is someone who's dead a ghost mm -hmm. that is returning whereas in the gospels christ is risen he is alive so the idea of a place being christ haunted is a very strange juxtaposition there so what sorry what was your question trinity <laughs> um whether bono's song represents a return to religion well, this is why I, I'm not necessarily sure I know, um, because we talk about, I think there's a return to spirituality happening in our culture. And, you know, people talk about being spiritual or being very interested in, you know, uh, collecting candles from a shop that, you know, like Hinduism and, and that sort of thing and meditation, and yoga and all of that sort of thing is sort of fashionable and people talk about there's a whole category of like religion and spirituality on spotify mm -hmm. right um and a lot of people will say yes i don't believe in god or religion but i'm very spiritual so that's definitely i think part of the state of mind that we're in which i think kind of connects to the, the christ haunted idea um but i don't know if that necessarily makes somebody christian Right. Um, however, we sh shouldn't take, we shouldn't, you know, we should take that seriously. Having a spiritual uh, orientation or a spiritual longing can be important and it can be the starting point of something deeper. So I have a couple thoughts about that. The first one is, so one thing that's interesting, Trinity and I listened to this song together earlier and she was talking about how basically... It's interesting that you can you can listen to it or read it on two different levels. One of them, or, or, or how if you start listening to the song, it seems like a really easy Mars Hill, quote unquote, opportunity. Because he says, I'm, I've looked in all these places, I've been out in nature, I've been in the city, I've found good relationships, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And so as the good... Uh, evangelicals that we are, 
we immediately interpret that through the lens of, oh, yes, you have a longing for something. The longing for the thing is God. And we immediately are thinking about C.S. Lewis um, and the weight of glory. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this brilliant quote. That's one of my favorite quotes of all time. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Obviously, beautiful quote, and I think it's true. Um, but I do think as well-trained intellectual evangelicals, we tend to hear that sort of quote and think, aha, yes, the, the thing you're longing for is God and the knowledge of God or the, the belief in the essential propositions of Christianity is what's going to get you what you're looking for. That's how you find what you're looking for. And then I just think it's super interesting that the song thwarts all attempts to make that the message by getting to the point where he says, okay, I know these precise propositions that are exactly what you're going to tell me are the answer. I know those things and I believe them. And I don't think he's being sarcastic about that. I think, I think at least he feels he believes that. But then at the end he says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for as if the intellectual knowledge of propositions about Jesus or the essential, what, what C.S. Lewis might call mere Christianity, that belief in those propositions is not enough to fulfill that spiritual longing. And I think it's really interesting that he seems like he anticipates that response to his statement that he hasn't found what he's looking for, that even that belief is not enough. I think that really goes back to what Raymond was saying, which is that I think our culture... I'm always hesitant to make these kinds of broad generalizations, but here I go. I think generally our culture is really well aware of the facts of Christianity, like Raymond was saying earlier, but I think that we treat it apathetically. So I think we don't take the facts of Christianity seriously, but we're well aware of it as a culture. And I'm talking about America specifically. Yeah, a reduction of Christianity to an intellectual statement, which is why, so when I hear that, what I think about is, for example, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you, in, in Western churches, like in the Catholic Church and in basically any Protestant church, um, either you're baptized as an infant and then later you have something called confirmation where you give an intellectual assent to the facts of Christianity, or you aren't baptized as an infant and you're baptized later, but baptism serves the same purpose as what would be confirmation in like the Catholic church or the Lutheran church, for example, where you at your baptism are giving a testimony, which basically just means saying, I believe X, Y, Z. I believe the facts of Christianity in the Eastern Orthodox church. You are baptized as an infant 
and you immediately receive communion. So you are taking communion before you are able to understand or intellectually assent to anything. <laughs> and like someone like uh, Trinity and my little brother Ransom, who has Down syndrome, who is never going to intellectually assent to the propositions of Christianity because he's never actually going to be able to fully understand those propositions in their complexity. And yet, uh, we would say he has faith and that his faith is probably stronger <laughs> than the faith of a lot of other people who are able to intellectually assent to those things. So the idea that what he's saying here, that I believe these facts and yet that still doesn't seem to be enough, maybe there's something about faith that is distinct from believing propositions. Oh yeah, and you can see that in the words of Jesus because I think that he was unique in the fact that Jesus cared about your motivations. Mm -hmm. uh, he says... You, you can do everything right, but if you do it for the wrong motives, then you're guilty. Mm -hmm. um, so he cared about a conversion of the heart, and I think that that is particularly unique when compared to other religions. But I kind of wanted to go back to what you were talking about, C.S. Lewis, because I think that also relates to this, to this conversion of the heart, mm -hmm. um, which is deeper than an intellectual ascent. Um, because C.S. Lewis has definitely played a big role in my personal faith journey. And honestly, I don't know whether, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't want to give too little um, cre credence to the saving power of, of God, but I don't know whether I would actually still be a Christian if C.S. Lewis wasn't there, wasn't influencing me, at least in my, you know, if I go back and look on my life, he had a huge influence in keeping my faith. Mm -hmm. um, C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity, he was an atheist, but he his conversion began with a fascination with paganism, a fascination, fascination with North, Norse mythology and romantic poetry as well. And he talked about this in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, and this is a huge part of his entire literary scholarship which you talked about in, in The Weight of Glory, which he called, the, the, he used the German word Zinzucht, um, or northernness, and he defined that as a longing which is so intense that it is satisfied in the longing. Um, that was his definition of joy. Mm. And it was this longing, this longing, it wasn't even explicitly stated a longing, longing for what, really. It was just longing. And later, when he was converted to Christianity, that was almost a separate thing. Um, he came to a belief in God almost like from a rational perspective. Um, he became, let's say, uh, what is the word? A theist before he became a Christian. Mm -hmm. So he said, I accepted that God existed, but I wasn't a Christian. He was looking at a lot of different religions like Hinduism and his story of becoming a Christian is he jumped on a he jumped on like a motor car ride with this, um, and he says when I got on the motor car I wasn't a Christian and when I got off I was, that was his, <laughs> that was his conversion and there's not really an explanation for how that happened, um, that's a separate thing, but when you look at his literature, uh, like the Narnia books they're very different from any kind of typical 
well, any kind of evangelist book, you know, or a book that was designed to convert people. It's definitely not that. Yeah. It's not an allegory like The Pilgrim's Progress or something where you can say, well, this this person represents this and this person represents this and this per- person represents this. It's deeply entrenched in a whole mixture of different mythologies um, and this idea of bringing in things like centaurs and goblins and uh, fauns and all of these things from Greco-Roman mythology was a pretty new idea um, and bringing that from a and bringing that within the umbrella of a Christian kind of a Christian worldview was a pretty new thing. Um, it was this imagery, this these pictures that are in the Narnia books, which really are not really, they're not a theological statement, but there's something about them which points to or points you in a direction that makes you long for good and beautiful and true things. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe the desire that those images evoke in us, which if you were to continue following that desire, it may in fact lead you to the deepest beautiful image or, or you know, uh, of Christianity. I think that that sort of takes us to another question, which is, so in the song, he doesn't have to stop and explain what he means by I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I think that's actually the part, one of the reasons it's one of the most popular songs of all time. I think people listen to the song, they hear, I I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And they go, yep, me too. <laughs> and that that's a, a relatively universal experience. And that's part of what makes the song work. And he doesn't need to explain it in order to make the song work. Meaning that we all, and C.S. Lewis thought this too, and that's part of why he talks about it in The Weight of Glory in the way that he does, that we all experience that kind of spiritual longing. We know what that feels like. We don't need someone to tell us, really. C.S. Lewis talks about it as opening up the, the inconsolable secret that you have inside of yourself. So he can tell you what you're feeling, but you are already feeling it. He's not telling you something new. You already know. Bringing us to the question, I think, if we understand that that's something we experience and, like like Bono in the song, we know that really the that Christianity should fill that hole, or at least that's what we've been told uh, by our gospel-infused, Christ-haunted culture, then what does authentic conversion belief in sanctification look like in that kind of culture where you can say the gospel and the response is just kind of, oh yes, I've heard that. <laughs> um, how do, how does this kind of song and the rhetorical situation relate to that? How can you really authentically convert and believe? Well, I think that this really comes down to this was the fundamental literary project of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. I, I mean, I think that relates back to what they were doing with the Narnia series and like the Lord of the Rings series. Is they were creating a mythology based on Christian beliefs 
that was enticing and in, in its own right, um, but was also coming from an angle that had really was was really not based directly in any kind of biblical foundation. I mean, theologically, it was based on a biblical foundation, but what I'm saying is the imagery wasn't based on a biblical foundation. It was it was coming from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And Lewis called that stealing past watchful dragons. Um, so, you know, he would use these different ways of approaching that so that when he actually talked about Christianity and and the gospel, uh, the heart, the, the emotional stance of the heart was ready to receive it. So let's, I mean, that goes back to like rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that you learn in rhetoric when you're trying to develop a persuasive argument is that the audience should come to the conclusion before you do. Yeah. Um, you don't state your conclusion and then try to defend it. You set up a series of propositions based on evidence and stories, right? So that the audience will take those stories, put them together, and they'll come to a conclusion. So you want to, you know, save the baby orcas, then you come up with a lot of different examples in which the baby orcas are being uh, uh, killed or whatever. And so the so the audience is listening to that and they're thinking, yeah, we really need to do something about the baby orcas. Yep. And then you state that conclusion. Uh, you say we got to save the baby orcas, and the audience is like, "Yeah, that's just what I'm saying," <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And so, it's the story comes first, and it's no coincidence that the gospels come before the apostle Paul, mm-hmm. you know, and the letters of the apostle Paul. First, you have the story, then you have the explanation of the story. So I th- actually think the song in a weird way, is is teaching us something about how to think about evangelism. Like, I think one of the primary lessons of the song actually is one thing not to do when trying to lead someone to to Christ and to the gospel, especially in responding to their art or to their expression of longing. Because, like I was saying earlier, if the tendency is to listen to the first, like, two-thirds of the song and say, oh, yes, you haven't found what you're looking for in in nature and in relationships and in people, you will find it in in God. And here, let me tell you the gospel story. And, and the tendency is to say, look, this is what you're looking for. It's God. And then it's all a nice, neat little package. You wrap it up with a bow. You hand it over to them. Whereas I think one thing that the song is warning us not to do is to treat people's expression of longing like that, as if it were that simple, <laughs> or as if it is solved by by a belief. Yeah, so this idea of spiritual longing and faith, Christian belief, these two things seem to almost be separate things although they influence one another and this spiritual longing is not incompatible with christian belief so as a christian i can say yes i have the spiritual longing and 
my explanation for it is is Christ and my longing for heaven and you know my longing for God but that's not necessarily the conclusion everyone is going to come to because that's again that's an intellectual thing but a longing is just a longing it's just an emotion so you can come up with other explanations for you know what this where this longing comes from and I mean that's one of the things Lewis said himself is he said, well, the problem with Wordsworth wanted to make nature his teacher, but nature doesn't actually teach you anything. You can't derive an ought from, from you know, your experience of the beauty of nature. But that doesn't mean we should really, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take it seriously. So that's, the, so that kind of leads into the question, what role does spiritual longing play in our faith journey? I think it's certainly the beginning, at least. I think everyone has, to a certain extent, some form of longing. I think that's what we were saying earlier, is that everyone can understand the experience of looking for something and not finding it, um, and not even knowing necessarily what that thing is. I think that's actually probably the most relatable part of the song, is that it doesn't say what he's looking for. And I think... Most people don't know what they're looking for. And I think that that's actually a pretty good definition of what spiritual longing is. is It's longing for something but having no idea what it is. It's not the beginning of faith, but it's the beginning of wanting to have faith, at least. Well, I think it's also the beginning of sanctification. Because I think part of... It, it's absolutely true what you were saying, that it is a thing that can be sort of a, a catalyst for faith. But at the same time, I think part of the reason that you still have that longing while believing and while being a Christian is that your longing is to be united with Christ, to be like Christ. And so you need to change for that to happen. And that work hasn't been done or completed when you have faith. So the fact that you're longing still to be different to be other than what you are makes a lot of sense to me that you would that you would feel that way. Um, so I don't think that spiritual longing is just what leads you or draws you into faith and then like it should go away, but that it's also partially what's drawing you, as C.S. Lewis says, uh, mm -hmm. since we're talking about a lot about C.S. Lewis here, uh, further up and further in that you're you you are changing, and longing is part of what is drawing out that change in you mm -hmm. yeah and also you know even if we believe that god is the satisfaction of all our longings that doesn't mean that they are satisfied in this life i mean that's also part of the point um because we will not be fully satisfied in this life even if we are believers until we are united with god um and so we simply just begin that journey and we know the source of our longings but we actually are still on our pilgrimage and i think that's also the role of sanctification in a lot of ways is that it's drawing us closer and closer to the thing that we need to be satisfied and so even at the beginning of having faith, you are not going to feel 
satisfied in your longing because you have not fully reached the thing that you are longing for. But you will grow in that as through sanctification. I also think it's really, so we're talking about it as a journey, right? And C.S. Lewis says that the the things we longed for, the, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located, that those things are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we have never yet visited. So even there we have a little bit the imagery of being on a journey, of physically going to a place. And in this song, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for, he... Dis- you feel like you're going on a journey. And he opens by talking about climbing mountains and running through fields. And later he says, I'm still running. <laughs> so we have this image of him being on a journey, trying to get to an actual physical place, which makes me think of Dante and the Divine Comedy. I was about to say, <laughs> it's even the same, it's the same order. He walks through a field Every a single forest. time. Oh yeah, oh, Wait, wait, true. maybe it's not a forest. It, it's, it's fine, it's close enough. Close enough, running through the fields and then climbs the city walls. City... It's like hell? Like hell? Wait, then, hold go on. down, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, I have more to say. Oh, okay. Kissed honey lips and felt the healing in her finger. Beatrice? Wait, okay. she's not, I guess she's not in the circle yet. I don't know uh, if the order holds up, but I Burned 100%. like fire. Then you've got the hand of the devil. Then you've got, okay, anyway, sorry. Okay, I'll stop. No, I, I agree. Dante, I think, is, is the right comparison. I don't know if the order works because the mountain part actually makes me think of purgatory because Mount Purgatory, but uh, it comes first. But the whole idea that Dante... What about that hill with a leopard and the lion and the... Okay. Yes, okay, yes. <laughs> I, we maybe could find a way to make it work with the order. But if we just think about it as the journey. So Dante is going on a journey from hell to heaven. And he, his journey has almost... I mean, it has a little bit to do with what he believes, but it's also a physical journey, right? Like, going up Mount Purgatory, he takes physical steps to get there, and he changes as a person in order to get there. And Dante gets to the end, and when he when he reaches... Raymond, you haven't finished Paradiso right yet, right? Okay. No, no I haven't. I'm going to spoil the ending for you, because you can spoil the Divine Comedy. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been, like, several hundred years, so I... I yeah. yeah, at this it's point, okay. it's your fault. <laughs> um, yeah. When he gets to the end, and in uh, Canto 33 of Paradiso, Dante looks up at, like, into the Empyrean and sees the Trinity. And he says he sees the love that moves the sun and other stars... That's where it ends, but I'm curious whether he would say, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for after seeing that. Well, I would say I would say probably not, but also he didn't actually the it's not exactly clear whether he actually has gone to paradise through death. Like his whole spiritual journey, he hasn't actually died yet. Mm-hmm. Like he's going back to Earth, yeah. So you know, you might you might say that. I I don't know. I think the the beatific vision is would be pretty pretty satisfying. That's probably true, <laughs> but he doesn't. I th- I think the the issue is so Beatrice for sure wouldn't say I still haven't found what I'm looking for. She very clearly has found what she's looking for, but I think I think Dante after going back to Earth might still say that because. 
I think what he's really after and what he's going to be looking for now for the rest of his life is to be part of that, be part of the choir and the the beauty and the satisfaction of being there in the Empyrean. And the fact that he's not, that he knows now what he's looking for. He knows that that's where he's aiming, or at least to be on the other side of, of Mount Purgatory. But he just isn't, he hasn't found that yet. He hasn't found what he's looking for in that sense. In that way, I think that the song is not an expression of Bono not being a real Christian necessarily, or of, I believe these things, but I just, you know, I... I'm still looking for faith or something. I think it's possible to have lots of faith and acknowledge that what you're looking for is more than just the belief that starts that journey, that you're climbing a mountain too. Well, it's not just the belief, but the relationship. Yeah. And that's part of Dante, what Dante was doing, because he was characterizing this relationship with God as as almost a love relationship, um, as was shown by the way he portrayed Beatrice mm -hmm. poetically, because Beatrice was kind of this symbol of longing, of spiritual longing. I mean, Beatrice was his, his when he saw Beatrice as, you know, a, as a kid and fell in love with her and everything, um, Beatrice symbolized for him beauty and that beauty was what represented something that wasn't necessarily Christian, but it was his way to Christ because his encounter with beauty is what revealed to him that there were beautiful things. And then that makes you ask, where do all the beautiful things come from? Where do they come from? <laughs> where do they I come from? I, could I don't tell. know. <laughs> we wish we had that answer. Well, I think we filled our Dante quota. Yep, we we found filled we our found Dante. We found what we're looking for. Yeah, we do. We found, <laughs> and no matter what we say in this episode, we hope that you do not choose to play this song at your wedding reception. Yes, please don't. There that are, is my deepest wish and desire and hope for you <laughs> is that you do not play this there are your wedding listen dear listeners there is a place and there is a time to listen to this song that is not a time or a place to listen to that song <laughs> i love that the idea here is yeah. that they'd be very tempted to <laughs> after everything we said in this podcast we know that's all you're thinking yeah, yeah don't do it don't do it thanks for listening everyone thanks for listening you've been listening to unreliable narrators a stoa mars hill podcast Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or email us with your questions at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. Our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the 2016 Japanese animated film A Silent Voice, until then, friends, we hope you find what you're looking for. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more in you
What I'm looking for.